Well, good morning. Great to see y'all here this morning. Uh, we began a, a brand new series last week that we're calling The Kingdom Experiment. And uh, what we're doing during this series is we're just simply taking as much time as it takes. I don't know how much time it's going to take. I'm sure it'll take us well into next year. But we're just kind of slowly and methodically going to work our way through uh, the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon that was preached by Jesus. And in this sermon, Jesus goes into great depth about uh, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what life in the kingdom is intended to be like. And the reason we're calling this the kingdom experiment is because uh, that really the challenge for us is to take these teachings that Jesus is going to present to us and to do more than just simply absorb them into our brains. Um, but to actually take and move them from our brains to our heart and really believe them. And not just intellectually believe them, but believe them to the point where it moves from our brains to our heart to our hands and our feet that it actually impacts the way that we live our lives as well as the lives of the people who are around us. And, and, and the experiment is, what would it look like if we actually lived our lives that way? How would it impact us and how would it impact the people around us if we daily lived out Jesus' words? And if you're here this morning, you're watching online, and you are a follower of Jesus, then I want you to understand something. This is intended to be the norm. That this is a normal way of living, that this isn't just reserved for, you know, like the ultra spiritual and somebody who have like this special spiritual gene or something like that, or, you know, the few radicals that are out there. But this is intended to be the norm that guides everything in our lives, the way that we think, our priorities, um, how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, how we uh, take our talents and how we leverage those, how we spend our money. I mean, it's supposed to impact everything in our lives. And here's the sad reality, that there are some who have been in the church for years and years and years who know lots of stuff. You know, we come to church every week and we listen to this unbelievable, amazing, incredible preaching. <laughs> Just fishing. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we listen to the Word. We attend Bible studies. You know, we, we, we even, we tune in to K-Love in our cars. Or if we're really spiritual, we listen to Bot Radio Network because it's all teaching. There ain't no music on Bot Radio Network. But, but we, we gather all of this incredible, wonderful, good, true, right information in our brains. But the question for us is, is has all of that information moved out of here? into here, and then flown out here. Past intellectual Christianity. And does it really impact the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? And does it impact the lives of the people that we live around? You see, I'm afraid that our churches, and I'm speaking in the big C church language now, but I'm afraid our churches here in America are full of people who know a bunch of stuff. We do. But because it hasn't moved past here, the truth is it's had very little impact on anybody's life, including our own. I think this is why the Apostle Paul says this. He says, you know, the bottom line is we don't need more information. He says this. He says what we really need is we need to live up to what we've already attained. In order, you know, you've heard it say that knowledge is power, um, not true. I mean, if we know something and we don't utilize it, it does absolutely nobody any good. Uh, applied knowledge is power. 
And so Paul says we need to take all of these things that we know and we've obtained up here, and it needs to get in here, and it needs to flow out here. And so what I want you to understand this morning is this, that if we live that way, here's the deal. Every single one of us is designed for greatness. I really want you to wrap your brains around this, that when God created you, he created you to to, to be a a planet shaker, a world changer. God designed you with purpose, and, and he designed you in such a way that when the kingdom of God really gets in you, that, that it's designed to flow out of you into the lives of other people around you. And when that happens, the world changes, becomes a better place. And the sad reality is that there are some wonderful church people who have attended church most of their lives and done all the Bible studies and, 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 and been a part of the small groups and done all of the church stuff, but have fallen short in one of Jesus' greatest commandments, his final commandment, is to go and make disciples. We've gathered all this knowledge and consumed and consumed and consumed and consumed and some of us, you know, for 20, 30 years and have never once in our lives led somebody to Jesus. You know, well, evangelism isn't really one of my spiritual gifts. Listen, the command to make disciples isn't given to only those who have the gift of evangelism. And here's the deal. Here's what we need to understand. Every single one of us evangelize all the time. We, we, we do. Uh, we, we, we evangelize. And we evangelize all kinds of different things. That, that word evangelize simply means, uh, according to the, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, to evangelize means to have a militant or crusading zeal over something. In other words, to be super excited about something. It's to talk to people about something that you're excited about. And we do that all the time. We evangelize all kinds of different things. You know, we're, we're, we're like, man, did you see the sale that Dillard's having? I got this shirt there, 50% off. You ought to go there and check it out. Or, or you know, I, man, this last week I got to play golf out at Woodland Hills and the greens were perfect. You ought to play there sometime. It was so much fun. I had a blast. Or, man, you know, we, we drove down to Nebraska City and we went to the, the Applejack Festival and it was so much fun. You ought to do that sometime before, before it's over evangelism is something that is just a part of our dna it's woven into us as human beings you know when something good or exciting happens to us we want to tell somebody about it we want to talk about it our natural tendency is to share what has happened to us with the people around us and so so let me ask you this personally when was the last time when somebody asked you you know what what did you do over the weekend and you were like man i went to church And it was the most awesome time. The people were incredible. The music is awesome. And the pastor, oh my word, the pastor is brilliant. And hilarious and handsome. Thanks, Mom. You ought to come with me sometime because I had so much fun and it's such a great experience. You see, folks, this is kingdom living. We used to have, Lyle and I were talking about this the other day. Some of you remember this. We used to have this thing called Friend Day, remember? And it was a Sunday where we would say, hey, this Sunday, you need to invite your friends. I have a suggestion for you. What if every day was Friend Day? What what if we were just so excited about what Jesus has done in our lives and how he saved us and redeemed us and and the goodness that he's shown to us that we just wanted to talk about it and tell people about it. On the same level, we talk about how good the Huskers played against Oklahoma yesterday. Right? We ought to talk about this stuff. It ought to to get in us. This is kingdom living. When when what, what God is doing in us actually creeps past our brain and it begins to flow out of us. This past week, I was reading through the book of John in my own just kind of personal devotional time and study. And and there was something that just kind of captured my attention. Um, I'd never really made all this connection before I've read it obviously several times but there was this pattern 
in the book of John that just kind of developed and it popped out of me. And I started writing down every time this happened. And I, I, I labeled this uh, come and see evangelism. Now, somebody else has probably come up with this in the past. I'd never heard it before, so I'm taking credit for it. But, but towards the end of John chapter 1, there's a story about this guy by the name of Andrew who has an encounter with Jesus. And it has such a deep impact in his life, the very first thing he does is he runs out and he finds his brother, a guy by the name of Simon Peter. And Andrew's like, man, Simon, you got to come see this guy Jesus. I'm pretty sure he might be the Messiah. I love this. Because after this encounter that Andrew has with Jesus, guess what he does? It, it, it so impacts his life, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't look for the first Bible study to jump into and say, i got to learn more before I talk to people about this. The first thing he does, he's so excited, he's like, i got to tell somebody. Just a couple of verses later, Philip has an encounter with Jesus. Guess what he does? He goes out and he finds his buddy Nathaniel and he's like, you got to come meet Jesus you got to come meet this guy. There's something about him. That, and, and just you, I want to share it with you. you. You read a couple of chapters later, and Jesus meets this woman, a Samaritan woman, who's at the well. And he has this exchange with her, and he asks her for a drink. And, and she's like, you know, I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Why are you talking to me? And, and Jesus responds to her. He's like, you think you know something about me. But if you really knew who I was, you'd be the one asking me for a drink because I have the water of life. And once you drink from my well, you're never going to be thirsty again. And then Jesus goes on and tells you, he goes, I know you've been thirsty. You've been thirsty for love because you've jumped from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. And none of that has filled the hole in your heart. And now you're in a relationship with another guy who's not your husband and you're not satisfied either. And she looks back at him like, how does this guy know all this stuff about me? And, and she begins to think, you know, maybe this guy is the Messiah. And I love the part of the story because what she does is, after she has this encounter with Jesus who offers her living water, it has such a deep impact on her life, guess what she does? She runs back into town and she tells everybody that she can find, she says, Come and see this guy who told me everything about my life. Come and see. That's the story that's repeated over and over and over again throughout Scripture. When I, when, whenever somebody has this genuine encounter with Jesus and Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, begins to genuinely get its way into them, it becomes contagious. Ain't no vaccine for it. There's not a mask that can stop it. I mean, when Jesus' kingdom gets in us, it is meant to creep out of us. We can't contain it because it's bigger than us. And this whole, you know, well, my relationship with Jesus is a personal thing. It's just, it's just Jesus and me. It's kind of personal. Listen, that's heretical. It, 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 it's, not, it's not biblical. You see, the challenge that Jesus is going to give us as we work our way through this sermon is that if my spirit is really in you, if Jesus is really in you, then the natural response is, see, you can't contain Jesus. He's bigger than you are. And so he's going to flow out of you. And if Jesus is in you, that means that his principles are in you. Because his invitation is, come follow me. Come learn from me. Uh, the, the principles that I want to teach you, the philosophy, the way of life that I want to teach you, this is the way that, that life is going to just be kind of built into you. And so if, if the kingdom is in you, if Jesus is in you, then his principles are going to shape and direct and guide the way you live your life, not just for an hour and a half, one day a week on a Sunday morning, but 24-7. They're going to impact the way you think going to impact the conversations that you have with other people. They're, they're going to impact the way you relate to other people. 
the way you, you deal with the pain and the hurt and the sorrow and the setbacks that happen in life. It's going to impact and it's going to determine your priorities, your decisions. It's, it's going to impact everything. And listen, I'm not saying you always do those things perfect. There's a, there's a spiritual maturity that has to take place in our lives where we grow in all of these areas. But here's the deal. We ought to be growing, right? I mean, we're not supposed to stay as babies. Paul talks about this. He gets frustrated, in fact, at one point, and he says, man, you're at the point where you ought to be eating meat, but I keep having to give you milk. You're fat little babies, and it's time to grow up. And, and, and we know this, we realize this in every other area of our lives. I mean, how weird would it be if this morning I stood before you and intellectually I sounded like a 55-year-old a man, you know, I could talk about current events and, and I could do complex math problems and intellectually I was 55, but behaviorally I'm still wearing a diaper and sucking on a bottle and can't walk yet. That'd be weird, Right? Listen, what is true in every other area is true spiritually. And the, and the truth is, in the kingdom, the church is full of people who intellectually have taken it all in and are very articulate when it comes to speaking Christianese. But when it comes to living it out, it's another thing. And so this is one of the challenges of this sermon that Jesus preaches. He's going to challenge, in fact, he's actually going to challenge who is really in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom. I mean, who, who, who's more kingdom? Let me ask, who's more kingdom? The person who knows a bunch of stuff but doesn't allow the stuff that he knows to impact his life or the life of anybody else, or the person who doesn't know that much stuff yet, but is just doing everything that they can to take what they're learning and take what Jesus is doing in their lives and just apply it to their lives. Who more in the kingdom? Jesus would say the second guy. See, this is what ticked the Pharisees and the religious leaders off. But it's also what made the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners absolutely love Jesus. In fact, one of the things that Jesus is going to say, and we're going to look at this later down the road, but Jesus is going to make this radical statement that is intended to, to shake us and wake us and really make us think. But Jesus says that entrance into eternal life is through a gate that is very narrow. And only a few enter into it, Jesus says. And then he says, but the road that leads to destruction is broad and wide and well-traveled. Which really, this one sentence is what the entire Sermon on the Mount is all about. The, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you need to understand that there is a philosophy of life. There is a way of thinking. There is a way of determining priorities and values that the majority of the culture has. That is the broad road. And you need to understand that the destination for anyone who chooses that road, the priorities of that road, the philosophies of that road, the values of that road, regardless of whatever intellectual knowledge that they may have. In fact, to whom much is given, much is required. And so there's a way higher level of accountability to those of us who know the truth. He says, but whoever subscribes to that philosophy at the end of the road, you need to understand this, that the destination is destruction. And the scary thing about it is, this road, it is broad and it is wide and there are a lot of people on this road. And then Jesus says, but there's also a way that leads to life and he calls it the narrow gate. In a nutshell, the Sermon on the Mount is the narrow gate. That The sermon is the narrow gate. It's the way that leads to life. But the, here's the deal. We've got to more than just know it and memorize it. You have to actually appropriate it into your life. 
in order to get through the gate. And, and what is so scary, and we talked about this last week, or what's, what's crazy, not scary, but crazy, um, that, that right out of the chute, we talked about this last week, that Jesus says that entering into this gate, it all begins by being poor, having poverty of spirit. In other words, if you want to get in the gate, you have to recognize, we sung about this, your own spiritual poverty, your own spiritual need, that on your own, you don't have the ability to get through the gate. Your goodness, your righteousness, it isn't enough. In other words, it costs something to get through the gate. And the reality is every single one of us is too poor in the commodity that we need in order to pay our way through the gate. But here's the good news. Jesus, because of his great love that we just sang about, he already paid our way through the gate. We don't have to pay our own way. Jesus paid the price for us. The point is that nobody gets into the kingdom of God by their own righteousness. It's only through the righteousness or the right standing of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus begins this sermon on the mount with blessed are the poor in spirit, which we talked about last week is the first of the eight Beatitudes. And we talked about this, that that word beatitude, or uh, it's a word that comes from the Latin word beatus, is a word that means blessed or happy. I was reading this past week that not only does the word that Jesus used here mean happy or blessed, but it also could be translated as how fortunate you are, how privileged you are. In fact, one scholar said this, it, could be even, it even could be rendered as, as like congratulations. And so you talk about upside down here, and it's kind of hard for us to wrap our brains around this and, and, and really wrap around the fact that what Jesus is saying is here is like, congratulations, you're poor. Or, or uh, congratulations, you're being persecuted. Or congratulations when uh, people are insulting you and saying all kinds of evil things against you. How fortunate you are, how privileged you are when this happens. We hear that. And in our way of thinking, we're like, what? What? Because on the surface, based on earthly kingdom wisdom and logic, that just doesn't line up with what we think of when we think of being blessed or happy. And maybe the reason that it's so hard for us to wrap our brains around this is because so often we connect blessings or happiness with good circumstances, right? That if something good happens to me, or something at least that I perceive as good happens to me, then I'm blessed. But if something I perceive as bad happens to me, I'm not. And here's what I want you to think about. Maybe what Jesus is trying to help us understand as he begins to talk about the basics of Christianity is that true blessing goes much deeper than anything that happens to me. And instead is tied to what Jesus has already done for me and what he's currently doing in me. But what Jesus has done for me and what he's continuing to do in me, because that, that's real blessing and happiness, that's where that lies, because while all of these things out there that happen to me are going to come, and they're going to go, and they're going to change, what Jesus has done for me, and what Jesus wants to do in me, nobody can steal that. Can't no circumstance change it. It's good preaching, isn't it? It's Jesus' greatest sermon. I think we got to understand that in order um, to, 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 to even move on from here, we have to understand this whole concept in order to understand the rest of the Beatitudes. It begins by being spiritually full, uh, poor. In verse 4, Jesus says this. He moves on. This is the second Beatitude. and uh, this, this is as far as we're going to get today. But he says this, blessed are or privileged are, or congratulations to those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. That's the promise. 
The word that Jesus uses here for mourn, if you look it up in the Greek, it's pretty straightforward. It means uh, to be sad or to grieve. All of us know what that feels like, right? This is a universal experience that every single person on the planet shares. Regardless of your, your stature, regardless of your economic level, your education level, when it comes to grief, the playing field is absolutely even. The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes, that there's a time for everything, and it, and it talks about how that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. That in other words, we all, there's a time to grieve, and we're all going to experience it. And so what Jesus is saying here, that this is for all of us, not just a select few. And it's so crazy because, again, Jesus takes everything that we would naturally normally think and he turns it upside down on its head and he says, blessed are those who are in the midst of grief. We, we've been conditioned to believe the exact opposite, right? By, by this kingdom's standards. When, when you grieve... You're grieving not because you've won. You're grieving because you've lost. You're grieving because you've lost something. You're blessed when you win and then when you gain something. When you win, you have reason to celebrate. You're blessed when everything is going your way. That's what we have been conditioned to believe that blessed is, right? And Jesus says, not always. He says there is actually a blessing that is only available in the midst of difficulty. There is a blessing that you can only access in the midst of mourning and grief and loss. Now, this isn't the only place that the Bible talks like this. In fact, the the, the Apostle Paul says this crazy thing in Philippians chapter 1. He says... To, 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 to live is Christ, and to die is what? What? That's crazy, right? To, 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 to go on living is gain. This is so crazy. It's so upside down. I mean, how many times when, when somebody, we find out that somebody's sick or in the hospital, do we go and pray, Lord, I just pray they die because that's the greatest blessing that they can receive. To die is gain. We don't pray that. That's loss in our minds. I mean, what faith does it take to actually believe that, to be like, listen, here is the greatest gain that you have as followers of Jesus. The the greatest gain you have is death. Why? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We believe that, right? But, 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 but in this kingdom, it doesn't make any sense. Blessed are those who mourn. To die is gain. It's all upside down. It's crazy. Apparently, James was crazy too. Because I want you to look at what he says in James chapter 1. James is going to be talking about joy. What does it mean to have joy? And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, consider it pure joy. Consider it unadulterated, pure, over-the-top joy my brothers and sisters when you face trials of many kinds what count it joy how about count it suffering how about count it just survive he says count it joy how can James say that How can Paul say that to die is gain? How can Jesus say you're blessed when you're mourned? I'll tell you why. There's a very simple answer that is tucked away in the Old Testament book of Psalms, chapter 34, verse 18. This is why there is a blessing that comes with challenges and difficulty and sadness and mourning. You ready for it? Here it is. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves all who are crushed in spirit. 
You see, Jesus says the reason that you can consider yourselves blessed when you mourn, whenever your heart is broken, is because in my kingdom, in the midst of the sadness and the sorrow and the difficulty and the loss, in that moment, you're going to experience a closeness and an intimacy of my presence in a way that you've never, ever, ever experienced it before in your life. And here's the deal. And, I, and I, I know many of you know this from personal experience, but in those moments when life absolutely falls apart and you experience loss and grief, all of a sudden in that moment what happens? It's in that moment that God actually becomes everything to you. All of, all of a sudden, God becomes everything, right? It's like, it's like God becomes the breath we need to breathe in our lungs in order to sustain our lives. It's like, it's that often. It's like, God, I need you, I need you, I need you to get through this moment and this moment and this moment. And sometimes we don't even realize how close God was with us, but when we look back over time after he's brought us through it, because that's what he's promised to do. He's the God that takes us through. After he's brought it through it, we look back and say, how in the world did I make it through that? And it's because Jesus was with you in a way that he's never been with you before. In our moments of desperation, that is when God means everything to us. Because we need him so bad. As opposed to when everything's awesome. And you're experiencing you know, no hardship and no difficulty and no loss and no grief. I mean, how much do you need him then? How often do you think of him? How hard do you push into him? I, I see this all the time, that people will come to the church and they're in trouble and they'll show up and you know they're, they're so interested in God and desperate and they'll press in and, and they're really interested and then when God takes them through the situation, they're gone. What do I need God for now? I mean, life's pretty good. It's in those moments of trouble that we are driven to press in and pursue the presence of God. There's a, a, an instance in 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul talks about this. He's, he, he lets us in on some pain that he's experienced in his own life, and he calls it a thorn in his flesh. And so Paul, he's experiencing this painful thing. We don't know what it is, but this painful thing in his life, this thing that is difficult, it hurts, it's a constant irritation, and God is like, God, God, or Paul is like, God, fix it, take it, fix it. Three times he says, I went before God and I said, remove this thing from me because it hurts and I don't like it. And I want you to look at how God responds to Paul. Uh, he, he says this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He, it says, but he said to me, God said to me, my grace. Just sang about that, didn't we? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, therefore, because of that, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulty. And then Paul makes this incredible statement. He says, for when I am weak, that's when I am strong. Why? Because I'm not operating in my own strength. It's the strength of God operating in me. Please don't miss this. One of the best ways that God reveals himself to a hurting, broken world is not through your strength. It, 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 it's not through your prosperity. It's not going to be through your power. It's not going to be when everything is perfect in your life. But according to Paul, the clearest vision of God in our lives comes through, of all things, 
through our own weakness. When you experience all the things that everybody else in the world is experiencing, you know, challenges, difficulty, loss, sickness, when, when, when you go through things like the diagnosis of cancer, when, when you experience a friend turn and stab you in the back, when, when you have a child rebel or when you lose a spouse, when you experience all of the challenges that the rest of the world, all of the heartache and the pain that everybody else is experiencing, and the people around you see that you respond differently than everybody else is responding. They, they, see that, they see what you're going through, and yet you still have this sense of peace. You still, you still are able to have joy in the midst of sorrow and sadness and pain. And you still have faith. I'm telling you, that is, has way more of an impact than if all you ever do is walk through life and everything is awesome and everything is perfect and you never experience uh, and, and pe pe people never, never see you go through uh, these difficult things but, and, and people never are able to see the truth of the matter is that God is your all-sufficient He's the most beautiful thing in your life. Instead, they just look at all the stuff you have and how everything is perfect, and they're like, well, of course they're happy. I mean, of course, their life is perfect. Their family's perfect. Their finances are perfect. I mean, who wouldn't be happy? But it's in those moments when life just punches you in the face. It's in those moments that God has promised to be with you and strengthen you. And it's in those moments that you feel him the most and other people see him the clearest. And, and, and Jesus says, there is a special blessing in that. That he'll recycle our pain. He'll, there's purpose in it. He'll use it. It's not meaningless. There, there's another deeper deeper level to this when Jesus says blessed are they who mourn and remember this is not just a, a physical reality but there's a deeper spiritual reality that, that when we do like what we talked about last week when we we understand our own spiritual poverty and then as a result we begin to mourn over our own sin we recognize our own need, and we begin to mourn over our own sin, our own failure, our own rebellions against God. And when we grieve it to the point that we're willing to turn away from it, in that moment when we turn away from sin, Jesus says, here's what God's going to do. He's not going to condemn you. You loser, you failure, you blown it. He's not going to do that. That's what the rest of the world does. That's what this kingdom does. I mean, come on. We live in a world that absolutely loves to celebrate the failures of other people. In the kingdom in this world, that's how it works. They love that stuff. It's the stuff that gets broadcast on the news. Television shows are made about it. It gets, it gets broadcasted all over social media, and everyone wants to talk about it. You know, did you hear about so-and-so? And they did such-and-such. And, such. and, in fact, the reality is the only thing this kingdom loves more than a hero is a fallen hero. But in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. And in the center of Jesus' kingdom is John 3, 17 comes on the heels of probably the most famous passage of scripture in all of the bible john 3 16 we know this many of you have memorized it for god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life and and we love john 3 16 and rightfully so but just as awesome as john 3 17 because john goes on to say for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so Jesus says, when you recognize your own poverty of spirit and you mourn your sin, God's response is not going to be condemnation. Instead, what it's going to be is comfort. 
That the, what, what God is going to do, it, it's, like, it's, like, it's like Jesus is saying, you know what, I'm going to wrap my arms around you and I'm going to say, I know what you did. I see your hurt. I feel your sadness. But I want you to know, not only do I not hold it against you, I took that upon myself so you didn't have to carry it anymore. I love you that much that I paid the penalty for your sin and I've taken your punishment upon myself. That's what Jesus does is he says, welcome to the family. No condemnation. Listen, here's the deal. You can never receive that kind of comfort from Jesus without first a mourning taking place. That's why Jesus says you're blessed when you mourn. We're going to take this one level deeper. There's actually one more level to this that, that Jesus' audience would have understood way better than, than we do probably in our culture. But, but for the most part, it seems like that the modern church is kind of, kind of lost and forgotten about this. But not only is there to be a personal mourning for sin, but there is also a social component to this, that there is to be a social corporate mourning for the sins of the nation and the sins of our world. For the first century Jew, they would have got this. They would have understood it because down through their history, and you can read this through scripture, there were times where the nation began to shift away from God. And what God would do is he would raise up a prophetic voice who would call the people back to God. And what they would do is they would gather together as a people. And they would confess and mourn, not just their personal sin, but they would confess and mourn and intercede on behalf of the entire nation for the sins of the nation. Unfortunately, today, what tends to happen instead is when we as Christians, we see all of the sin and brokenness around us and we, we shake our heads about, you know, how the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And we want to make sure that we protect ourselves from all of them because we don't want that to creep in on us. And so we gather together in our holy little huddle and we look at all of them through our stained glass windows and we shake our heads and we lament, look at what the world has become. And we long for the good old days. We, we see things like the rising drug epidemic and we see the decline of the traditional family and we see the devaluation of marriage and the continuing shift of how gender and sexuality is being defined. And we, we see things that God declares as right and righteous and holy being mocked and ridiculed and declared as intolerant and old-fashioned. And in the midst of all of that, our tendency is to do the exact opposite of what we just read Jesus' mission and what he would do in John 3.17. When we see the brokenness of the world, unfortunately, way too often, our reaction is condemnation. And rather than being a force of love, driven to seek and to save like the one that we claim to follow, Instead, we become content to just kind of huddle together in righteous anger and protect ourselves from everything that's out there. While the heart of Jesus is shattered. My, my question is this. When's the last time you looked at the condition of the world around you and rather than putting them in their place, or better yet, just Responding in apathy, it's just, you know, this is the way it is, this is what the world's become. When's the last time you experienced such a deep mourning for the condition of the people around you that it broke your heart to the point that it caused you to weep? The Old Testament over and over and over again, when the condition of the people got so far away from God, God would send a prophetic voice, not only to speak the truth over the people, 
But this prophet would weep and mourn over the condition of the people that he was sent to love and to lead. It's interesting that when you read through the Bible, there, there's never um, an instance we read where Jesus laughed. I think he did. One of the things I love about that uh, series that's come out, The Chosen, if you've never watched that, watch it. Um, it's awesome. But one of the things I love about it is just the, it depicts the humanity of Jesus. And I see him with the children laughing. I believe Jesus laughed. The Bible doesn't record when Jesus laughed. But on a number of occasions, it records when Jesus wept. When, when Jesus stood and he wept over Jerusalem, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only knew the punishment and the judgment that's coming upon you because of your decision. I, 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 listen, I, I think that, um, and this is just my opinion, but I think we have plenty of prophetic voices who speak out in condemnation to the condition of the world around us. But what we need are more who are moved enough to get on their faces before God and weep and mourn and grieve over those who are lost. I'm just convinced that the answer to the question of, you know, why aren't we seeing more people come to Jesus? Why aren't my friends, why aren't my family entering into a relationship with Jesus? First of all, I hope we're asking that question. We ought to be asking that question. If we don't ask that question, if we don't care enough to ask the question, there's a problem. But I think the answer is found in James chapter 4, verse 2, where James makes this simple statement. He says, you have not because you ask not. Again, when's the last time you found yourself on your face interceding and pleading with God to reveal himself and to save a lost friend or loved one? I, I did that one time. I was in a small group, and they said, before we eat cake, we're going to write down the names of people who need to know Jesus. And so we prayed for them. So I prayed for them that one time, and nothing happened. Maybe this is why the Bible talks about the importance of persistence in prayer. When something tears our heart apart to the point that we become so impassioned about it that we will do whatever it takes, Right? I heard a story the other day about a father who persistently and consistently prayed for his atheist son to come to Jesus for 33 years. 33 years, his father is on his face, interceding, weeping, mourning on behalf of his son. Finally, one day out of the blue, he got a call from his atheist son, said, Dad, you're not going to believe this, but I gave my life to Jesus. 33 years. Now this former atheist is on fire telling everybody he meets how Jesus changed. Come and see. Come and see what Jesus did in my life. But it took 33 years of weeping and mourning. I wonder what would happen if every single one of us in this room who claimed to know Jesus, what do you think would happen if every day we got on our face and began to mourn over, weep over, pray over, and plead for somebody we know who doesn't know Jesus yet. I'm betting over time, this building wouldn't be able to contain the number of people who gave their lives to Jesus. Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn. Why? Because when you experience grief and loss and difficulty and pain, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you in a way that you've never experienced before. Blessed are those who mourn, because when you mourn over your own sin, Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not going to condemn you, but instead I'm going to wrap my arms around you, and I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to lift you up. Blessed are those who mourn, because when you mourn over the sin and the condition of the world around you, Jesus says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use you. I'm going to flow out of you 
and I'm going to use you to be an agent of healing and change in other people's lives. You were created to be a world changer and a planet shaker. <laughs> when the kingdom gets in you, you can't contain it. I think this is why Paul could say this in 2 Corinthians. I'm going to close with this if the band wants to come. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the apostle Paul says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in not some, not a few, but all of our troubles. Why? So that we, in turn, can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. Guys, this is kingdom living. <laughs> but you can't give away what you haven't received. <laughs> and so this morning, if you're here, if you're watching online, and you've never made that decision, if you never come to that place of poverty of spirit where I just, I'm not good enough, I can't do this on my own. I need a savior. And you come to the place where you mourn your sin. This is your day. Because Jesus' invitation to you is come and see what I can do in your life. If you just give your life to me, come and see. Come and see. And so this morning, if that's you, I want to just pray over you today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we come to you today. And we thank you that you're the God who loves us. You're not against us, you're for us. We thank you for that today and that you loved us so much that you were willing to give up what was most precious to you, your own son, to come and, and to leave the comfort and the splendor of heaven to this messed up planet and to live a life here, to be persecuted and, and, and ridiculed and beaten and bruised and hung on a cross and all of that happened because of the immeasurable love that you have for us because you knew that we could not pay the penalty for our own sin and so today if there's anyone watching online anyone here this morning and you're just like man I, I want to receive what Jesus has done for me if he loves me that much then I want to I want to receive him then I just encourage you in the quietness of your own heart to pray this simple prayer, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. Receive me into your family and help me to know what it looks like to follow you. If you prayed that prayer this morning, his promise is that Anyone who confesses their sins, repents of their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of their sins and, and, and to invite you into his family. And Father, there are some of us here today and I just pray that for those of us who have prayed that prayer and have, have tried to follow you, that you'd put a new kingdom awareness into our hearts and our minds. Just explode in us. The world needs some goodness. The world really needs some goodness. Help us, Lord, to be able to be agents of healing and change, not condemnation, not pointing fingers, not, oh, forgive us for that. Give us a heart that breaks for the people that your heart breaks for and help us to love them the way that you love them and help, them to, help us to serve the way that you have served us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Help us as we leave this place to leave and operate in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.